All right. So you'll just keep watching those and skip the sermon. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. So, you know, whenever, you know, different personalities are different when you see those trust fails or different failures, because some people, depending on your personality, you're like, oh, are they okay? Can we get some follow-up? Because you're compassionate. Others of us, it's pretty funny, right? And, uh, and, and those were the ones of us who were laughing. And it's always a good idea to learn hard lessons the easy way, which means vicariously. To learn from other people. And you and I have the opportunity to do that in this series that we're in called Far From Perfect on the Life of Abraham. Today, as we're going to see, this is an oops story. This is a faith failure, but he's going to learn from it. And that's really important to understand. Because we're talking about this person that God regards as a giant of the faith. Whenever God points to somebody as a person of faith, Abraham is the top of the list. So he was a person of great faith. But it's not like he started that way. He wasn't always that way. And it didn't happen like that. And what we're going to see is one of the things God uses, which is part of the curriculum for all of us, if we're going to grow in life in general and certainly grow in the faith, is when we mess up and when we fail. And we learn the hard way that us trying to control our life is not so great and us trusting God is much better because that's the kind of failure we're going to look at today. Today we're going to see Abraham in a moment of anxiety, in a moment of fear, in a moment where he realizes I'm out of control and I don't know what to do. And he has a choice. He can either trust God or take control on his own and do his own thing. And we're going to see him do that. But understand all of us, when we face those times, our instincts typically are not going to help us out. And we can make a lot of mistakes when we're animated and dominated by fear and anxiety, which reminds me of a commercial by Geico about 10 years ago. I don't know if you remember this one or not. Now, I can't show it. This is our Friday night service that we put online and edit over the weekend and put online. And because it goes online for copyright reasons, I can't just play the video because YouTube gets mad and does bad things to us. So... I'm going to, in just a little bit, I'm going to, we're going to try this. This may be a terrible idea, but I'm going to, we're going to show the video of the commercial. I'm going to try to narrate it. Okay. So this is, see what happens. This could be a fail, just like we saw in the video. Go ahead. Let's start it. So they start out, they're running, they're scared. They're being chased by a bad guy. Oh, they see a house. Let's hide in the attic. Let's hide in the basement. And then she says, well, why don't we just go to the car running car and, and drive away. And he says, are you crazy? Let's go hide behind the chainsaws. And the bad guy just raised, you know, rolls his eyes. Right. And here's the punchline. Um, when you're in a horror movie, you make dumb decisions. That's what you do. And that's true. Right. When you, uh, because whenever we get scared, we don't necessarily tend to think the best, think the straightest. And And some of you right now, you're just in a life situation. I mean, this is a very uncertain world where part of your life feels a little bit like a horror movie. Where maybe where you just don't know how it's going to happen and it's scary. Maybe it's your health or someone you love. Maybe it's a financial thing. Maybe it's a, a crisis in your career or in your business or in your family or in your marriage or and and it's very uncertain. And those those times are huge faith steps because either we're going to trust God enough to say, God, help me just do 
be faithful, stay on path, and just at least take what I think is the best next step. And I'm going to trust you. Or we freak out, try to take control. And when we do that, we tend to really mess things up. And today we're going to see Abraham do that. We're also going to learn what faith would look like in in the lesson that he's going to learn. And so for those of us right now in in an uncertain situation, and hey, all of us in this world, we're, we're in a world right now full of anxiety. How do we navigate this in a way that could be called faith? And so we're going to learn from Abraham and we're going back, you know, we, this, with this week two of the series. So let's recap from last week. Kind of like if this was a Netflix thing, you know, last week and far from perfect. Here's what happened. Okay. And, uh, Abraham. So God tags Abraham for a huge calling. And that is really to launch God's redemptive plan on this broken planet that he chooses Abraham to be the one who will Start a nation, the people of God in the Old Testament, the Hebrew nation, and that God, and that through his descendants, God would choose this people, this nation, that would be a light to the nations, would be a blessing to the nations, and ultimately, through those people, through his descendants, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, Jesus, would come. In order to do that, he would have to leave where he was from, in Ur of the Chaldean Empire, and go through the desert and go to the land of promise. And last week we saw how that was a very imperfect step of obedience, the way that he did it. But God accepts it as obedience. And that's last week. This week, now he's ready to actually go to the promised land. To do that, he has to go through the desert. Because as we talked about last week, between the land of promise, or excuse me, the land of comfort... And the land of promise is desert, which is kind of normal. And he has to go through the desert. Now, the Bible didn't tell us what happened as he goes through hundreds of miles of desert with all his livestock and family and possessions. It couldn't have been easy, but God provided evidently. They were able to get through it. Certainly when he was through that desert, it was like a major relief. He had to be encouraged. God is faithful. This is awesome. He goes into the edge of the land of promise, Canaan. Uh, where God had told him to go. And there God appears to him in a very dramatic way and reinstates the promises that he made to him. Abraham, this is the land I've given you. You can trust me. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you. Abraham is so meaningful to Abraham. It's such a moment of clarity that he builds an altar. He builds a place of worship because he wants to remember that moment and he wants to honor God. And that, by the way, is a, a good little tip in a faith journey. And that is sometimes you and I will have a moment of clarity. Maybe you're in one right now where you just, you you sense God's realness and his faithfulness and his calling on your life. And it's just crystal clear. And when you're, and don't take those for granted. When you find yourself in a moment of clarity, do something to commemorate it. So that you can always look back and remember it. That's why journaling is a good idea. He builds an altar. Uh, Some people have rocks and they do sharpies on rocks and they have their pile of rocks of God's faithfulness. But all those can remind you when, because when life does get uncertain, and it will, you can always go back and be like, you know what? I remember that. God showed up in a big way. He's faithful. I can trust him. Well, Abraham has this great moment of clarity. And then he goes in the land and that moment of clarity disappears pretty quickly. Now he's going to return to that clarity, but this is a story of how he loses it. Because when he goes in the land, he's all excited. God's going to provide. This is going to be awesome. 
But when he goes into the land, he has a not in the brochure moment. Here's what I mean. Here's what he finds. Genesis 12:10. Now there was a famine in the land. That's not what he expected. If God's going to provide, if God's going to protect, if God's going to be there for them, and here it is, this land of plenty, it's not. It's a land of famine, and he's not prepared for that. And he's got a choice. God had told him to be in the land. God told him to trust him, but everybody's looking at him now. He's got all this livestock, all these human mouths to feed to, in a place of famine. Now what's he going to do? And he's got a choice. Either he can stay there, trust God, see the miracle of how God will provide in a famine. Or he can take control and go his own way. Make it happen on his own. And when you're in a horror movie, you do dumb things. A lot of times, any of us, when we're afraid, we do dumb things. And that's what he's going to do. He's going to take matters into his own hands. And, And what that means is this, the rest of the verse. Now, there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. So he decides to go down to Egypt. God didn't tell him to do that. He decides to go down to Egypt. Now that phrase, go down to Egypt, in the Bible is both a, sometimes a very real thing that people did when uh, they couldn't trust God and they went to escape to Egypt for help because Egypt was powerful. You have the Nile River Valley too that's fertile. There's no famine there. And so it can understand why people would do that. But it's also a phrase going to Egypt and going down to Egypt becomes symbolic in the Old Testament of instead of trusting God, trying to handle things another way, trying to handle things your own way, going down to Egypt. Uh, Egypt is a symbol of that. Um, rather than the trusting God, let's go get help from Egypt because they were powerful and all that. And in the phrase going down typically is not a good phrase when you say going down to somewhere. Going up to somewhere, good phrase. Going down to somewhere, not so good. We have that too in our, in our vernacular. We say uh, like going south. We'll say, oh yeah, everything was going great until it went south. Right? And I got to say, as a southerner, that bothers me just a little bit. You know, I, I've, I'm a Texan now. I grew up in Alabama. I've always lived in the South. And what's wrong with going South? I think the South is pretty awesome. In fact, some of you have moved here from some other place and you now live in the South. You didn't, you've never lived in the South. And I want you to know how, how awesome it is. You made a great decision moving to the South. I'm going to just hear some things that come out of the South. And when I say them, if you think they're great, you cheer. All right, here we go. Here's some things that come out of the South. Fried chicken. SEC football. Great barbecue. Grits. Nice people with good manners who say things like, please, thank you. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Even write thank you notes. How about Coke, Dr. Pepper, Pepsi? All those came from the South. Sweet tea, cheese straws, bluebell ice cream. Phrases like y'all and bless your heart. Which, by the way, if you hear that, that's not necessarily a compliment. And then, if, if that, doesn't, that doesn't push you over the edge, how about Chick-fil-A from Atlanta, Georgia, right? I mean, the South is pretty great. But in this case, not so great. In this case, it's a violation of faith. It's saying, I, I, you know, and he's freaking out. He's in famine. He's got all these mouths to feed. He's got all so he goes down to Egypt, which, again, on, on, from a human perspective, makes sense. 
It was a wealthy nation. They had a fertile river valley for all his livestock. And Abraham was wealthy. He was not a poor fugitive. He was a wealthy person who could buy his way in Egypt into a comfortable life and ride out the famine. And that's what he does. And so everything seems great as he's going down into Egypt until he realizes he's got another problem he didn't think about. And the problem that he has is he has a pretty wife, which doesn't sound like a problem. Right? I mean, that's a good thing, right? Like my wife, Christy, she's beautiful. I mean, sometimes I'll look at her and she's like, what are you looking at? And I was like, I can't help it. You're just so pretty. I've just got to look at you. I mean, she's a pretty, that's not a, like a problem, right? That's a good thing to have a beautiful wife. And I'm sure you have a beautiful wife if you're married and you're a guy or whatever. But, um, you know, so that's not bad. So what's wrong with it? Well, we'll see. So he starts freaking out because he realized, I don't know what I'm going to do. And he talks to Sarah and he starts out so great. So as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Now, if he'd stop there, that'd be awesome. Right? Isn't that sweet? In fact, some of you, if you're here and you're with a girlfriend or you're married and you're here with your wife and uh, sometime today, sometime this weekend, whatever this week, just look at her and try it. Just say, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Who knows what will happen, right? But he doesn't stop there. He says, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they will kill me and let you live. Which is weird. Like, why that? Like, you ever see a couple and, you know, the guy, you know, you wonder, how did that guy get that girl? And so is that what's going on? People are upset. Like, how did he get that girl? I'm going to kill him. That's not what's going on. In that culture... Uh, in those cultures with, they had emperors who were all powerful, could get anything they wanted. And Abraham and his entourage and all his wealth would have attracted a lot of attention as they go into Egypt. And the Pharaoh or any emperor in those days would have these big harems with lots of wives and concubines and all that at their disposal. And whenever they saw, they get whatever they want. And when they saw a beautiful person that they wanted, they would get get that girl. And he even had officials and all that knew that. And they were always on the lookout for people from all different cultures and all different. And so he's thinking this is not going to be good because, you know, to make her available, they'll just kill me, which happened. And so he's upset about it. Now, what's interesting, by the way, about this is at this point in her life, she's 70 years old, which is pretty cool, right? I mean, that he's that scared of, and, uh, um, like I, I heard on the radio the other day, I'm a P1, if you know what that is, uh, on the ticket. And they were talking about Linda Carter, the original Wonder Woman. She's 71 and how beautiful she is and all this. And maybe she looked like that. I don't know. But what's even even beyond that, this is going to happen again when Sarah is 89 years old with a whole, with another ruler. So she's a hot tamale, bottom line. OK, is all we know about Sarah. And he's concerned about it. And so here's his plan. Say you're my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake because they would negotiate with the brother, kill the husband. So say you're my sister so I'll be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. So the plan is, okay, so I'll get to live. I'll move on. Maybe meet somebody else. Who knows? You'll be kind of sold into what amounts to sexual slavery, but we can't all win in this deal. Like, you know, just take one for the team and, you know, 
Maybe it'll work out. And then, of course, he's lying too, right? Sort of. Because when he says, say you're my sister, we learned in Genesis 20 that that is true. I mean, it's half true. There's a half lie, half truth. Because they were husband and wife, but they also had the same dad. So they were brother and so They were half brother and sister. And I know some of you are like, really? That's messed up? And yeah, it kind of is messed up. And some of you are thinking, you know, and, and it, some of you are waiting for me to tell an Alabama joke. You know, marrying your sister kind of thing. And I'm not going to do that. I, I love Alabama. I think it's amazing. In fact, uh, not long ago, I saw a t-shirt that Alabama made me so proud. It said this, Alabama, literacy ain't everything. And that's true. That's true. So Alabama's great, right? But um, anyway, they, he's like, man, this, this is the plan. Well, it turns out his fears are confirmed. Verse 14, when Abraham came to Egypt... The Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, meaning you negotiate with the brother. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maidservants and camels. He, he was wealthy, he gets even wealthier. Which on the surface maybe feels like, you know, I mean on one hand... You got a lot more stuff. On the other hand, you're down a wife. And in this case, that's a problem. Because it was through Sarah that the nation would come. They don't have descendants yet. Which means that he's made a big mess of things. Not just losing his wife, but also giving away any chance of fulfilling their calling. To have descendants that would create a nation through him the Savior would come like He's really, he's really messed it up. And what's he going to do? Because there's no way. I mean, he, he is completely powerless to do anything. But God intervenes. And that is a wonderful thing about God is that he will let us make a big mess. But it, and even when we go off on our own and we do stupid stuff and all that, he doesn't forget us. He doesn't abandon us, even if we abandon him. And he intervenes. Verse 17. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarah. We don't know what diseases, but they were serious diseases and it wasn't comfortable. And somehow he, Pharaoh finds out, I guess deduces, this must have something to do with that new girl. And he had, must have had a conversation with Sarah because he finds out what's up. And, he, and so it says, so Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Meaning, I wouldn't have done that. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men. And they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Get out of Egypt. Take your wife and all your stuff with you. And he goes. Now think about a couple of things there, the aftermath of this. For one, think about how awkward that would be in your marriage when you get her back from a harem and you've given her away. Like imagine going to marriage counseling to deal with this, right? And so you're, you're in the office and the counselor, you know, Abraham and Sarah sitting there and the counselor's like, so tell me why you're here today. And Sarah's like, well, he gave me away. And, and so the counselor says, oh, okay. So metaphorically, I guess you like, Abraham, she feels like he gave you, that you gave her away. And she's like, oh no, he literally gave me away. 
And Abraham, yeah, like my bad, I did. I kind of gave her away. And I, and I mean, imagine that, right? It'd be, that's a lot to work through. Also, think about what's going on with Pharaoh and his household. Because think about this. Remember the calling that God had given Abraham, that he was to be a blessing to the nations. That God would bless the nations through him. And this is the first nation he's interacting with outside, once he's gone to the land as the people of promise. And he's not a blessing. As he goes into disobedience mode, doesn't respond in faith mode, responds in fear instead, and becomes a curse rather than a blessing. And he's shoved out rather than making God look glorious. Because that's what happens when believers become afraid and operate. And there's a little lesson there. Because if we as Christians, as crazy it is in a culture, we we too are to be people of blessing. We have good news to share. That's our mission, to be people of good news. We have good news of the message of Jesus and how people can come to know God through faith in Jesus. And we're called to be the good news as well. We're called to be, Jesus said in John 13, the most loving people on the planet, to love like he did. In a way that's compelling. And if we, in fear of what's happening in our world and all that kind of sort of get in battle mode, we got to take this country back and all this kind of stuff, then when that happens and that's been happening, then that's just a big mistake that makes us feel more like a curse than a blessing. And if we just stick with the mission that we've been given to trust God, to be the good news, to let him worry about all that other stuff, then it, it frees God to do what God does. Well, Abraham has become a curse. Pharaoh sends him packing. He goes back to the land, but he has learned a big lesson. He's chided. He sees how God's provided for him, how God intervened with Pharaoh, causing the sickness. And he decides when he goes into the land to go back. Remember that moment of clarity, that place of clarity, the altar that he built, the place of worship? He decides that that's where he's going to start as kind of a restart. And so here's what we read in chapter 13. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. Then Abraham called on the name of the Lord. Abraham calls on the name of the Lord. Once again, he knows he's learned the hard way that God can be trusted. Even in a moment of fear, God can be trusted. And, he, and, and when he goes to the land, he's able to see the miracle of how God provided. Because they would have still been in a famine and God provided for them. God would have provided without all the drama that he caused. And he would have been able to see that. It would have been a great story. It would have been amazing. But he's at least going to get it now. And he decides to go back to that place of clarity as a restart. And that's something to think about too. Because you're never too far away to restart. To go back to a moment of clarity. No failure is final. And in fact, God loves to move into our failure and mess and all that and, and pull us toward himself and help us learn how to live by faith. It's, it's, just, it's just part of the deal. It's part of how we learn is making some faith mistakes. The lesson that he learns was given by Jesus, is also taught by Jesus in Matthew 6. It's a longer passage, so stay with me here. But this is the lesson. Jesus said, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. 
Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And can any of you add, can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, tomorrow is thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans, people who don't know God, run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But instead, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. In a world of anxiety where there's so much uncertainty, what he's saying is this. You do you and let God be God. You worry about one thing. Me, you. If Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And let God worry about our provision. Let God worry about the outcome. Let God worry how. And he says, don't worry about tomorrow. Because that's what we always worry about. We worry about tomorrow. We worry about the what ifs. I mean, right now we're here. We're okay, right? We're breathing. We're good. Like we're in church. We're okay. We're like good. But we're anxious about what hasn't happened yet. We're anxious about tomorrow because we're not in control of tomorrow. And when we find ourselves in an anxious spot, it's really scary and we start to freak out because what if, what if, what if, the what ifs in life. And we can't do anything about the what ifs in life. We're not in control of tomorrow. And that's why Jesus, all you'll do, all you'll do if you worry about tomorrow is ruin today. So instead, today, just trust God enough to do One thing, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. What does that mean? Well, seeking first his kingdom is to say, I'm going to pursue his interests. I'm going to be part of what he's doing in the world and whatever is best, you know, for, for what, what to fulfill my calling, whatever best decision I can make today, that's what I'm going to do and trust God to worry about all this other stuff and his righteousness, meaning he's, he's told us what is righteous. He told us what is good. So I'm just going to do whatever next step I can deduce from what he's revealed. I'm going to do that. I may not know a hundred steps in front of me. I may not know two steps in front of me, but typically we kind of know one that I think this is what faithfulness would look like right now, but it's scary. But am I willing just to take that step and then just trust God to take care of everything else? And if you don't know what that step is, you know what the step is? Pray, talk to people who are wise and find your next step. That's your next step. But typically we know a next step. And if we can just trust him to say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you for all the stuff I can't control. Just help me stay on path. Now, I know that's abstract. So let me give a a few just illustrations to make it more concrete. One concrete area of life where it's really hard to trust God is our finances, right? That's why Jesus talked about what you eat and drink and all that. That's scary to trust God for finances. And to manage the way God has called us to manage our resources where we, you know, have generosity and we give first and we're wise enough to save and all that. That, that sounds easy, but when you're struggling and, you, oh, no, you know, I, I can't do that because I'm not going to have enough. But God promises that he will, he will respond to that, that he will provide for that. But that's hard to do, right? And if I do that, even if it's the right thing, how is it all going to play out? Let me give an illustration in our church. So this was right after I became the lead pastor here. So it's about 20 years ago. 
And we had a situation where we got, we were, uh, we were, had a, we were in a board meeting and the board, you know, you, organizations have boards of directors in the Bible. Those are called elders. And it's like a board of directors, but with a bunch of spiritual stuff on top of that too. So these are really godly people. And so, um, anyway, they, uh, we were in a meeting and we got a letter, uh, somebody, this group of investors had sent a letter that asking for money that somebody had given, they tithed on a lot of money and evidently this person was running, they're not in our church anymore, but running a Ponzi scheme. And, um, I've got a button undone. They're telling me on my thing, uh, on the little confidence monitor. Say, quit sitting because you've got a button undone. So I'm sorry for whatever happened there. What's that? Christy did not dress me, no. Um, it's the second time that's happened this year so far. So I guess you're going to have to start dressing me. No? Okay. So anyway, we're in this meeting, all right? So we get this letter from an investment group, for this group of investors saying, um, hey, we, you know, this person became wealthy in a, in, in not a good way, in a legal way. We're asking for you to re- give back what he gave. It was like around $200,000. And, uh, I mean, it's interesting if you run a Ponzi scheme and then you tithe on it. It's an interesting thought. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so, uh, and, and it, and so we were like, well, okay, so we got our lawyer and the lawyer came in. And, and we got, got his opinion. He said, well, you're under no legal obligation to pay the money back. You received it in good faith. You spent it. I mean, it was given a while back. You've spent that, those resources. You've spent that money. And it could go to trial. They could try to do that. But the chances of you losing that trial are about zero. So you're under no legal obligation to pay that money back. And I was nervous about paying that money back. I was like, it's a lot of money. And then one of our elders, who's still in our church, got a Mike Cornwall, asked the lawyer, well, what is the right thing to do? And the lawyer said, well, the right thing to do, if you can, is to pay it back. And instantly, all of the elders were like, well, then that's, that's, that's the answer. We're going to pay it back. And God will figure out how to make up for that and provide for our church. That's his job. Our job is to do the right thing. And we did. And that week we paid it back. And it was one of those moments as a young pastor, I was just so proud of our church, you know. And you know what? God more than made up for that. Because God responds when we take steps of faith. So that's one area. I'll do another area. Parenting. Parenting is scary. You know that? You ever tried it? <laughs> Some of you are like, you know, I really want, and it's great to want kids and stuff, but it's scary once you get them. It's like, and, uh, and because it's unpredictable what's going to happen and they, you know, do dumb things and, you know, they, and there's a big bad world out there and, you know, how am I going to protect them? And, it, and it's hard to parent by faith as opposed to trying to be over controlling. At least it was for me. Um, you know, because I don't want my kids to hurt. I don't want them to make mistakes. I don't want them, you know. And so, so giving freedom as they get older is kind of tough to do. And my kid, if you knew our kids, and some of you do, we had two boys. And you know how some kids are like the calm, like read books all the time kind of kids. And 
We didn't have those. So we, our kids were kind of off the chain, adventurous, risk-taking, uh, just everywhere all at one time. In fact, Caleb, our youngest especially so, and I, I prayed every year that God would, God would just help us keep him alive or not lose him one more year. And I still pray that. He's 26, but I still pray that God will keep him alive one more year because that's just, that's his, you know, he's just, and God, God's using all that, but that's who he is. And it was, it was hard not to be overly controlling. And we made a lot of mistakes in our parenting, but I am grateful that by and large, that wasn't one of them. That we didn't shame that out of them. The adventurous, risk-taking kind of a thing. That we let them be them. And as they grew, we let them have more freedom. And yeah, they made some mistakes and they got hurt and they did different things. And, but they grew and they learned. And God is still using that spirit. And I think one of the things that helped us is being in youth ministry so long. And seeing so many families just be overprotective and make a little bubble and not allow freedom. And that just doesn't end well. But it's hard, right? It's hard to trust God with our kids. Another one that I'm learning right now is just in relationships. I'm, I'm learning. I need to be better about uh, moving into conflict as opposed to avoiding it. Because I'd rather avoid it. Because it's unpredictable. Like, it's better just to not rock the boat. It's better just to, you know, with a friend or with whoever, you know, just leave the hard thing unsaid. And maybe somebody else will tell them. Or if there's a conflict, just be always not that big a deal. Just, you know, maybe just sweep it under the rug and move on. But the relationship doesn't get better. I don't get better because I won't have insight into my state. I, I mean, because when I talk about somebody else, there's things I'm going to need to hear. And that, so there's a lot of things that won't happen. And here's the deal. My job is not to control the outcome. My job is not to control how somebody's going to respond. My job is to do what love demands, and that is speak the truth in love. And deal with conflict, the Bible says, don't let, don't let the sun go down in your anger. Meaning, deal with conflict quickly. I can't control the other person. And I don't have to. Um, my job is just to do my job. And that is what love demands. Now, I could keep going with examples, but you get in kind of the flow of this thing. That when life is scary, when life is unpredictable, when we find ourselves in a tough spot, fear... If we stay animated by fear, will cause us to do a lot of dumb things when we try to take control. But we have an option, and that option is to just do what God has put in front of us to do and trust him for everything else. And some of you right now are in a scary place. And let me encourage you to trust God. And you may not know the next 10 steps, but you probably know the next one. And just trust God enough to do that. And allow him to deal with everything else. Let him worry about tomorrow. Some of you are about halfway down to Egypt. And let me encourage you to turn around. And some of you have made a real mess. And like with Abraham, God would love to move into your mess. And help you get back on path. And in that process, learn a painful lesson. That's better to trust God than to take control myself and mess things up. But that's okay. That's how we learn. And that's how we grow. And if you, another, you know, little minor lesson, I guess, is if, you know, if you want to give away your spouse and they're good looking, go to Egypt. No, it's bad. I shouldn't have said that. It, it's one of those distracting things. So we're going to go to God. And I want you to think about the path that you're on right now, okay? 
I want you to think about what makes you anxious, what you're worried about. And let's go ahead and just bow our heads together. And whatever's going on right now that in your, could be in your finances, your relationships, your career, your health, whatever. Just ask God to help you be faithful to take the next step and trust him. Just, just speak in your heart enough to, that you know, just to have a moment of clarity in this moment. And, and right now in church, there's a moment of clarity. Be like, you know what? I can't trust God. I don't know how this is going to play out. But he does. And I can trust him. And in that moment of clarity, just ask him, God, what does faithfulness mean right now? What is my next step? Not my next 20 steps, not how's all this going to work. But just, God, what, what does faithfulness mean? What is my very, just the next step, the next thing you want me to do? And then ask him to help you do that. And when you do that, there'll be one more step and one more step and one more step as we trust him. And Father, we thank you that you can be trusted. In Jesus' name, amen.